neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now this is a familiar passage, almost like a famous passage, um, and we're going to break it down a little bit. So let's pray as we launch into the Word of God. Father, I just thank you for your presence, and I just want to welcome you here. I want to welcome your voice into our hearts. Would you speak into God, each woman here? Would you help us to see you as you want us to see you? And would you help us to see ourselves as you see us? In Jesus' name, amen. So 10 years ago, I became a dolphin activist. It all started with the documentary, The Cove, where they, the, the trainer and activist who trained the dolphin spur flipper back in the day went undercover, took secret footage, filmed the dolphins in all of their beauty in the ocean. But his agenda was to capture some of the practices of the fishermen in Japan in this area called the Cove. It was both beautiful and terrible. My children will tell you that I've told them on more than one occasion that I carry wire cutters in my trunk. And I will jump into the sea or a tank at all costs and free the dolphins. <laughs> Thus, that pretty much makes me a dolphin activist. Well, for a dolphin activist, there's a verse in Revelations that is a bit troubling to me. It comes out of the chapter chapter 21 out of Revelations, and this is what it says. And the sea will be no more. Now, I thought, how can this be? Because, you know, the dolphins. And uh, so I went and I did a lot of studying, and it wasn't really all that helpful. Um, you know, Bible scholars interpret, some of them interpret the passage literally. Some of them say it's imagery of the new heaven and the new earth. But as I thought about the oceans and the seas, what I came to see is there was one striking feature, and that was that the seas separate. They separate land from land, people, nations, cultures. <clears throat> and so I began to kind of like let that idea of separation sink into me when it comes to the sea. Because whether this passage in Revelations is literal or metaphorical, one day, there will be no more separation. And so when we see that verse, and the sea will be no more, it reminds me now of a little bit of the separation we experience in our world today. For now, separation is what Paul addresses in these final phrases of Romans 8. He addresses the inseparable love of God, and then he walks us through all of these separations. One author describes this inseparable love of God like this. The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, is a love which clings inseparably to its object. God's love is not dependent on us holding on to him. We are the object of his affection, and his love is dependent on him holding on to us. And that's what makes it inseparable. So we're going to walk through all of the things that Paul walks through. The inseparable love of God in the physical world, the inseparable love of God in the spiritual world, 
the inseparable love of God in time and space, and finally, the inseparable love of God in creation. Do we have slides? Yeah. Oh, cool. Did you see it? There you go. <laughs> um, am I supposed to be cueing you? Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We're now on the slide that says the physical world, death and life. Oh, I'm not good at this. <laughs> okay. So the first thing Paul says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life. Now, all of us have experiences in this world of death and life. I have brought a visual aid for you, and this is my grandson that was born to us a couple months ago. Everybody, everything everyone tells you about grandparenthood is true. It's wonderful. And it's true that when you're done, you pass them on. But um, that part is not the part for me that is amazing. When I look back on my own parenting, I often think, I wish I knew then what I know now. And it's not in the, the practicalities of it. In fact, my daughter knows more as a parent as far as the practical care than I ever did when I was raising my children. But it's the heart pieces. I wish that I had the same heart pieces then that I have now. I've told my children I'll pay for their counseling and then I'm very sorry. <laughs> when I look at my grandson, that's where the amazing joy comes. The amazing joy comes from, I know, I know some things that I didn't know that. And that's what I have to give to my daughter and my grandson. So those of you who know me um, know that I have my first grandson. But you probably don't know that within weeks of before he was born, I also lost one of my very dear friends. Our families had been joined together through ministry decades ago. We shared a lot of life together. Our kids grew up together, and we lost her before she could meet him. And this is what Paul wants to talk to us about, that we will experience these separations, but there is something that we are inseparable from, and that's the love of God. Friedrich Buechner says it like this. The grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. And here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Nothing can ever separate us. Scripture speaks to both, both the beautiful and the terrible. In John, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then just a couple verses later, in this world, you will have trouble. So Paul lays it out for both, lays out both for us, the difficult and the messy, the redemptive and the beautiful, and he says, in this life, you must hold both in your heart at the same time. And that's a problem for us, because we were never made for separation. Back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, we were meant to walk with God in the cool of the day, without distance, without separation. But what we experience now includes separation. This will always be a war for us. When we receive both, both the terrible and the beautiful, we will feel the separation. We will feel the, that those forces at war in our hearts. And Paul knows this, which is why he talks to us about it. John Eldridge takes these ideas of hope and disappointment, and he writes them. And this is one of my favorite letters that he has ever written. I'll read you a couple pieces of it. He says, two weeks ago I was walking in the fields 
wrestling with hope and disappointment. Hope deferred, the scripture says, makes the heart sick. And frankly, I was pretty sick and tired of being sick and tired. I was upset with God about not doing more to prevent it. And then gently, the Spirit, God, through the Spirit, he brought me this passage out of 1 Peter. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And, he, and John writes, fully? Fully? I don't think my hope, hopes are set there even partially. Now, yes, yes, I'm a Christian and I believe in heaven, but on a practical, day-to-day -day basis, my hopes are not set on the return of the king. Really, now, stop and ask yourself, what am I hoping for these days? You'll discover that whatever the details might be, however faint the hope might seem, the bottom line is that you're hoping for some version of life working out. Hoping the doctors come up with a solution, hoping to have enough to make ends meet, hoping your friends come through or that love shows up. All good hopes, but very immediate hopes. Our focus is almost entirely, almost all the time, about life working out. God has given you a heart for the kingdom. And this is one of the most important things you should know about yourself. All the beauty you long for when some song brings you to tears, that is a heart for the kingdom. All those desires you have for laughter and friendship, for love, that is your heart for the kingdom. All those yearnings you have for adventures and triumphs, your heart is telling you something about the kingdom you were made for. And he says, friends, that kingdom is coming. It is coming. The problem is not with your desires and your longings. The problem is with hope. The problem is not with hope. The problem is with location and timing. Our desires for love and family and security are not bad. We just have to learn to interpret them differently. One of the prayers, sigh, where is she? Ah, I did good. One of the prayers, um, my notes say slide, but I'll read that part. <laughs> One of the prayers I've been praying um, lately is really a very simple prayer. Sometimes I list, you know, my desires and hopes and fears, but more often than not now, when I lay down to bed, I call it the prayer of release, and it's just this one sentence. I release everyone and everything to you, God. I just release all those desires and hopes and fears that, you know, cloud my mind, I just try and say this at the end of the night. I release everyone and everything to you, God. And this is the issue of our physical world, because everything that you desire here will be in some way life, joy, abundance, success, and in some way fear of the other side, death, loss, heartache, disappointment. <clears throat> So the inseparable love of God in the physical world, we say a prayer of release. And now the spiritual world. These are the powers that work in the unseen realm. And Paul says, I'm convinced that neither angels, demons, or any powers can separate us from the love of God. Now the word angelos, 
It means brilliant, spiritual, angelic beings. They're extraordinarily strong, and there are hundreds of scriptures of their activity in both the New and Old Testament. But the other words here are very interesting. The, the word um, in the Greek, meaning principalities, describes the rank and file of the devil's kingdom. Archai is a ruler or one who has long held a lofty position of power. And the plural form of that, archos, is an entire group of high-ranking demon spirits that have held their positions of power since the most ancient times. Paul also uses the word dunamis for powers, meaning powerful governments on earth. So in just a few words, we have a violent scene. Extraordinarily strong angels, an entire group of high-ranking demon spirits that have held their positions of power since the most ancient times, and the powerful governments of men. Yikes, don't you want to just say yikes? Yikes. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, the whole book is about a senior demon called Screwtape and him trying to train his nephew called Wormwood. And the object of their training is a Christian who they call the patient. And every chapter reveals some of the tactics of the enemy so that Wormwood would effectively totally confuse and mess up the patient, the Christian. One of his chapters um, points out this particular technique of the enemy. He writes, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something red in red tights and persuade him that since he can't believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. The enemy whispers to us, I am not here. It's a subtle tactic, but it's an effective one. If the enemy can get us to believe some version of this whisper, I am not here, we will spend much of our lives confused at what is happening to us because we do not understand the story we are in. We are living in a world at war, and the enemy will do anything to win. First Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he can devour. John 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I'm not here. Did it ever occur to you that the wounds you've taken in your life were aimed, not random, but intentional? Do you know why there's been such an assault on your life? Romans chapter 8, the chapter we're in, verse 11. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, if we ever really lived knowing this, that the spirit who raised Christ from the dead now resides in us, that kind of power, we would be a huge problem for the enemy. John Eldridge says, the story of your life is the story of the long and brutal assault on your heart by the one who knows what you could be and fears it. You sisters are more than you know. 
the spirit, the same spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in you. And so Paul says, neither angels nor demons can separate us from the inseparable love of God. We must have eyes for both. Slide. Is that distracting? <laughs> so this is the prayer I pray when I am particularly aware of forces in the unseen realm coming against me or my family or what I believe is the will of God for me or my family in my workplace, in my home. I pray a prayer of authority. And really it just covers the three works of Christ. I pray the work of the cross. I am ransomed, rescued, and free, and the enemy has no claim on me. I pray the work of the resurrection. I am raised to life with Christ. And so all that he has, all the life, all the knowledge, all the power, all the wisdom, all the mercy, all of the tenderness and creativity and goodness, all of that I have access to as he pours those things into me in my life. And then the last thing I pray is the work of the ascension, which we don't talk about as much, but it's really the third work of Christ, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the Bible says that all power in heaven and earth was given to him. So as I align myself with him, and I associate myself with the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, where all power in heaven and earth has been given, then I now, can stand confidently that he will give me the power necessary to come up against those forces in the unseen realm, the full work of Christ, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. And now we're going to move on to Paul's things present and things to come, nor height nor depth, which I call time and space. He says, for I'm convinced that neither the present nor the future neither height nor depth can separate us from the inseparable love of God. Now, when Paul wrote these words, his present circumstances were pretty grueling. He experienced rejection, persecution. He had spent many months in an isolated prison cell. And frankly, his future wasn't looking all that great either. He, ultimately, he would be beheaded by Hero. So his things present and things to come was not really a very pretty picture. But when we look at our lives, what we see is that we are influenced by both things present and things to come. And we're influenced by space, as in distance. And those things actually change us. Our children grow and mature, we hope. Our bodies get older, like mine, and we can't do what we used to do. We have distance between us geographically. My son and his wife live in Memphis and my daughter and her husband live in our home with the new baby, there's a huge difference in our relationships because one I visit and I have connection with, but one I live everyday life with. So we are changed by space and time. Sometimes we want more space, sometimes we want to be close, sometimes we wish for things from the past, sometimes we look forward to the future, we are separated by space and time in many ways. But the thing that we often forget is that God is not. 
In Revelations, he says, I'm the Alpha, the beginning, and I'm the Omega, the end, who is and who was and is to come. He is the beginning of all time, the end of all time, and that never changes for him. He is not influenced by time. He is not changed by time. He's not separated by time. And the same thing with space. There's a passage out of Exodus when God is appearing to Moses in the burning bush, and he tells him to go um, to Egypt and lead the Israelites out of slavery. And Moses says to God, well, kind of suppose I do. Um, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? And God says, the God of your fathers has sent, has sent you. And when they ask you what is his name, you are to say, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now that phrase, I am, when it's used as a standalone description, this is what it means. The ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence. I am. God's plans are not contingent upon time and space like ours are. He is who he is. He'll be who he is. The eternal and constant God. He stands ever-present, unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do all he wills to do now and in the future. The psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Nothing that currently exists and nothing that could potentially happen in the future, nothing in the sky or the deepest depths can create distance between a child of God and his inseparable love. He clings with an inseparable love to the object of his affection. And the object of his affection is you. Someone once told me, it's not that you don't love God enough. It's that you don't really understand how much he loves you. Slide. And now we come to creation. Now I have to tell you that when I was first reading this passage, I kind of lumped creation in with time and space because, you know, space, heights and depths, that was the heavens and the earth, and you created that, so it must mean all the same. And then as I kind of studied the words in the passage, not anything else in all creation, I started to feel like God was getting at a new little place. <laughs> Paul throws in this word, petesis, which is creation. And scripture often speaks of the entire creation awaiting the final act of redemption. It's important that we de delineate the um, language here because redemption is not replacement. There's nothing in scripture that indicates that the new heaven and the new earth will be a completely new thing. It, this won't all be destroyed. It won't all be replaced. What it will be is redeemed. Redemption is defined as the action of saving or being saved, rescuing something that is in imminent danger of being lost, regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment. 
the new heaven and the new earth will be creation purified, creation rescued. And of course, that brings me back to the dolphins. <laughs> and the sea will be no more, is what Revelation says. Now, this might be a really strange thing for us to contemplate, a new life, a new earth, without any sea. But to the ancient Jew, that was a different matter, because the sea represented trouble to them. The Mediterranean coast in Western Palestine was jutted with like these huge mountain landscapes, so making a sea trade was impossible for them to develop. And it was also from the Mediterranean that violent storms arose. But the Jews feared other problems besides the storms, and that was the Philistines. The Philistines were a seacoast nation, and they came from the sea. So the sea for them represented something ominous, sinister, and threatening. In Jewish literature and mythology, there's reference to a sea monster, the shadowy chaos of the sea, and even in Revelations, it says the beast will emerge from the sea. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. Even though the earth be moved, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. And then he adds, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. You see, in Jewish thought, the river, the stream, was the source of ultimate goodness and of life. In Palestine, that was the Jordan River. It cut through the heart of the arid and parched land, and in their desert habitat, it was life itself. So the Jew looked to a new world where all of the evils symbolized by the sea would be absent, and the sea will be no more. Whether it's literal or metaphorical, it's a hint of the quality of the new heaven and the new earth. No more separation. No more separation in life and death. No more evil or terrifying thoughts. No more distance caused by time and space. No more chaos. No more storms. No enemies. No tears. Ever. So let's go back to that passage that John Eldridge brought up out of, the, out of First Peter. He says, set your hope fully on the return of Jesus. And he writes, so I tried it. Hold on, I just touched it. return of Jesus. And he says, this is him writing, I tried it, meaning I let my heart run out in that direction and gathered up all my hopes and I set them on that one event. And the result surprised me. An immediate freedom of heart. I kind of thought it would make me a rather detached person, resigned to the things of this world. Not at all. My heart was suddenly free to enjoy what God was bringing, partial though it was. And that's the secret. It will be partial. The inseparable love of God in time, space, and creation. This is my last prayer, little tool for you. So this prayer I've used for several years now. 
And remember earlier I told you that you have a heart for the kingdom? There's a scripture that says God has set eternity in your heart. So you have a heart for the kingdom. So when you think about your desires and your hopes for this coming year, what I want you to do when you pray is what I call the so that prayer. So you say that, what you're hoping for, and then you tag on the end of it, so that. And when you say so that, you add a kingdom purpose. So for example, for my grandson, though it might make me cry to tell you what I pray about for him. So when I pray for him, his health, his well-being, you know, all those things you pray for for children. Um, I don't stop there. I say so that. So that he may grow to be strong and a warrior for your purposes. So that his struggles he will be able to see in the light of heaven and earth and the unseen realm. So I want his mind to be effective and smart and all of those things so that he can comprehend the truth in your word. You see what I mean? So all your prayers that are your hopes and desires, just put so that and, a, and attach kingdom purpose to that prayer. And that kind of, that interprets your prayer for you and it calibrates your heart when you pray. So some of the words that we've used this morning, I, I now have an interpretive translation of this Romans passage for you, and it reads something like that, like this. I have been persuaded and I remain convinced that neither death nor the complications that often arise in life, nor powerful angelic beings, nor even an entire group of high-ranking demonic spirits, nor anything that currently exists, nor anything that could potentially happen in the future, nor any political power, nor anything in the highest heavens, nor anything that resides in the depths and the deepest parts of the sea, nor anything that has ever been created, is capable of disconnecting me from the love of God or putting any distance between me and the inseparable love of God, which is in Christ Jesus my Lord. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. And as we hold both, there will be a war inside of us. There are angels and there are demons. We are separated and distanced because we are bound to time and space. But I want to end our time together by reading you some portions of the very last book of the Bible out of Revelations. And then if we can make it work, we'll watch a little video. During this time, I want you to try this. All of those things at the beginning of our time together when I said, what do you hope for? Whatever came to mind, I want you to do this. I want you to gather up all your hopes, and I want you to set them fully on one thought. The kingdom of Jesus is coming, and with it, the life I am longing for. The kingdom of Jesus is coming, and with it, the life I am longing for, and I want you to stay in that moment, the kingdom of Jesus is coming, and with it, all of the life that you are longing for. And I want you to notice what happens to your heart. Your heart will be freed up a little. Free to love, free to forgive, and free to enjoy the partial now. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read and then we're going to watch, and this is your time to kind of practice gathering up your, your thoughts. Father, I thank you for your presence with us. 
I thank you, God, that you have given us a heart for the kingdom. And I pray that you would help us to interpret that in the light of our own hopes and desires. That those hopes and desires, God, are good. And they've come from you because you've given us this heart that longs to be restored, longs to be returned to the Garden of Eden when there was no separation. There was no distance. There was no death. There was no grief or loss or separation. And we long for that. Our desires are good. But help us interpret them in the light, God, of what you have given us now, which is partial. We can enjoy it, God, and receive it and see both. Because in this world, we will experience life and death. And there are angels. And there are demons. We are living in a world at war. And as long as we pretend to hear the voice of the enemy, which says, I am not here, we will misunderstand God and be confused because we don't understand the story we have found ourselves in. God, this morning, I pray that you would help us understand. Give us, God, eyes to see what you see in our lives and in the people that are with us. Amen. This is called Eden Restored. Every time I try and do this, I don't know if it's just that it's so beautiful. Eden Restored. End of the Bible. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants, those are, that's us, will serve him. They'll see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have a need for the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. He who testifies to these, these things says, yes. I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen.